slide, turn to Psalm chapter 46. Psalm 46, and we'll be looking at all 11 verses, and we'll break it up into three sections, but primarily focusing on the last uh, couple verses of Psalm 46. But if you have your Bible, go ahead and follow along. It will be on the screen if you don't have a Bible. Um, or, you know, having a Bible, is, that's, that's kind of an interesting statement, because you could download it for free on your phone. I use Blue Letter Bible on my phone as a free app. It's a really good one. It gives you the Greek, the Hebrew, and maybe you don't care about that, but it also gives you cross-references and um, commentaries, all for free. It's amazing. On your phone, it's like I have a half of my library on my phone. It's insane. So Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble present help. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives away, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Sounds like a little bit of what we read in Revelation. Though the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah. Pause. Think about that. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob or Israel is our fortress. Selah. Pause. Think about that. Ponder. Verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars to cease. To the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You might even think tanks, whatever. Verse 10, here's probably where we're going to end up. Well, I know we're going to end up here, but probably for most of the time. Verse 10, be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I am God. I haven't thought about this too. Be still and know that I am. Selah. God, I am. Know that I am. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. Good news for the New Testament Christian. The Lord of hosts is in us. Upgrade from just with us. He's in us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress, our defense. He's not only the supplier he is the supply he's not only the he not only supplies the pieces of the armor of god he is the supply and the actual pieces of the armor it's the person so uh, let's open a word of prayer and then we'll just kind of focus in on just three areas we'll work it, focus on the first few verses the middle uh, few verses and then the last two verses and then we'll be on our way lord jesus uh, thank you that we could gather in your name, and I just pray that you would just uh, encourage people, um, help us to really maybe just ponder today, and as we say law and pause and put to rest the, just the cares of this life, all the, just the tyranny of the immediate, all that beckons our attention, all the attention harvesting that's just coming to collect us and to get our thoughts and to, uh, and just to vie for our attention, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would just have the liberty to just um, teach us what you will. Reveal us who you are. Help us to really pause and to, and to take a moment and to think about who you are in us and who we are in you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing I want to point out, oh, um, first thing I want to point out is the Life Night Fellowship. I forgot about that. That basically today, during table talk time, I'm not going to do table talk. What I'd encourage you to do is take the table talk time to make arrangements to meet with someone on Life Night Fellowship Night. So normally we either meet here, we play games, we bring a potluck, we have some sort of food, or we meet at different restaurants. And, and so as we've been doing these Life Night Fellowships, I'm going to encourage you to make arrangements with someone in the church hopefully someone who you haven't connected with before, to where either you could meet at your house, their house, or maybe 
for coffee or maybe uh, maybe you meet here. You just open the church up and say, hey, let's meet at the church or maybe it's a restaurant. So be praying and thinking about who you've been wanting to connect with and then uh, try to make that connection with them after church today for next week's. And it's optional. It's totally volunteer. Um, you don't feel, don't feel obligated. Um, but please make the effort to do so. That would be awesome. So in Psalm 46, verses 1 through 5, God is our strength. We will not fear. I'm kind of pulling out those main thoughts from this cluster of five verses in that I want to say that the Lord is sovereign. He's in control. He created all the angels. Uh, He is the Lord and master over all of his creation, the seen things and the unseen things. He is God of the living, and he even knows the fate of the dead. I'm, I'm building this up because it, when we know that the Lord is above all, he's in all, and he's over all, that he's all-powerful, all-knowing, and in every time and place and in every place and time, it sounds like it's saying the same thing, but it's not, we start, to, we start to think like our God is much bigger than we initially thought. Again, you have a big God, you've got small problems, small fears. You've got a little God, you've got big problems, big fears, right? But our God is so vast, so immense, so uh, immeasurable um, that it just kind of, it causes us to lean into his everlasting arms and it dwarfs our fears because he's our strength. And uh, what do we have to fear? So because of who God and where God is, because of who God is and where God is, we need not to fear. First of all, well, who is God? You might be thinking, doing a quick quick calculation. (laughs) He's love. He's just. He's patient. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's desirous of you. He's long-suffering. He's forgiving. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's comforting. This is one that's hard to believe. He's interested in you. You're the apple of his eye. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter your nationality, your gender, um, all the stuff in your class. You know the interesting thing about doing pre-marriage counseling is like everyone puts their best foot forward and when you're dating and all that kind of stuff. And me, I would spray cologne on and... Uh, you know, you, but God loves you at your worst. He knows all of your dirty laundry list. He knows everything. And in spite of you trying to put your best foot forward with God, while we were yet sinners, Christ loved you and he died for you. So he's merciful. He's comforting. He's interested in you. He's desirous of you. He's relational with you. He's head over heels in love with you, even while you were yet a sinner, not able to clean yourself up and present yourself with your best foot forward to God. This is who God is. Well, where is God? That's who God is. Well, where is God? Since the cross of Christ, since the New Testament, remember Jesus said, Uh, this do in remembrance of me, and he took a cup and he said, this cup represents the blood of the New Testament. It's shed for the remission of your sins. And he said, this body broken for you, it's done for you. And he says, I'm going to give you a new covenant, not an old one, but a new one where he says, where your sins and iniquities, I will remember no more. So after the cross of Christ, he able to forgive you completely, to fill you completely with his life. When I mention that in reading these verses from Psalm, God is with us, God is with us, God is with us, that's a good thing. In Christmas time, uh, we say uh, from Matthew chapter 1 and verse, I think it's 18, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is called God with us. We have something better than God with us after the cross. We have God in us. And so, Where is God? Well, he's in us. How did he get there? Because of the cross, because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And so since the cross of Christ, all those who put their faith alone in Christ alone have an eternal and get this, an internal relationship with God. And remember, eternal life is not just a somewhere, it's a someone, right? Eternal life is not just a somewhere, it's a someone, He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. 
And so eternal life is a someone, not just a somewhere. So, and that eternal life and that eternal love lives inside of you and wants to express his life in and through you. This is why we not, need not be afraid. Who is God? Where is God? Circumstances is coming at you. Life is coming at you. You're not exempt. No one's exempt. Um, and so, you know, tragedy, bad things that happen. The rain falls on the just and, and the unjust. It's no respecter of persons. So as life comes at you, this is why we need to know who God is and where God is. So when, when we tend to be tempted to be afraid, as the psalm says, we will not fear. God is our strength. I want to kind of elaborate this point from Romans chapter 8. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I want you to see verse number 1, because kind of bookended in Romans chapter 8, he starts with no condemnation, and then in the last verse, he ends with no separation. And in between is all of this meat. But this is really good. Or it's like the KFC, um, the double down, where it's the pieces of bread or a chicken breast and a chicken breast, and they put ham and bacon in the middle. Anyways, um, for the Yukito-friendly people. Romans 8.1. So this is meat, actually. I'm, I called it like a sandwich, like there's bread and there's bread and there's meat in the middle. This is meat on the outside and meat on the outside and meat in the middle. There's no for, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. And I'm just kind of skimming and highlighting. Verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. How do you get the Spirit of God? By faith? By receiving? It's not an achieving system. It's a receiving system. It's a faith system. Jesus, I can't. I know I've fallen short. I know I'm a sinner. Will you come into my life? Forgive me and fill me with your, uh, give me the gift of eternal life. Boom. However you want to word it. That's not magic words. It's just faith in Christ. Saved by grace through faith. Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery or bondage to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as children of God by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That unique term of endearment. Chloe calls me Faja. I call her Daja. What's the D-A-J? Unless you're Hispanic, then it's Daha. Um, but this is a term of endearment. Pops. That's what I call my stepdad. Pops. And my father-in-law. Pops. You know, this would be even closer than that. Daddy. You know, it's the really that intimate term of endearment. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. You have that internal witness of who you are and who God is and where he's at and where you are in relation. To. Look at uh, the next verse in Romans 8 as we journey through this chapter. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously and freely give us all things? What does that do to your heart and spirit? So you're in the family, and I didn't put this verse in here, but it in the verse after one of the ones we just read, it says, and you're joint heirs with Christ, meaning all that he has is all that you have, simply by being connected in the family. And you got into the family not by behavior or behaving a certain way, but by being birthed into this family. And as a byproduct of being birthed into the family, by being born again, Jesus said, uh, now everything that he has, you have. And you're never getting kicked out of the family. You might be one of the worst kids in the family, Right, but you're not getting kicked out. You're not going to be set on the in front of the fire department. <laughs> Does anyone do that anymore? Here's Neil. He's he's not a very good Christian kid. We don't want him anymore. Boom, fire department. Um, who shall separate us? <clears throat> Remember, it said no condemnation. Now it says no separation. Who or what shall separate us? From the love of Christ, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, uh, nakedness. I would say if you're running around naked, you should be separated. But anyways, danger, sword, what or who shall separate us? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. It's a super conqueror. 
Because if, if you're conqueror, you're already at the zenith and the top. You're the best. But if you're more than the best, what do you call that? Well, you call that a super conqueror. That's what the, they, don't, they didn't translate it that way, but that's the way the Greek expresses more than conquerors. You're a super conqueror in Christ through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. For those of you that have separation anxiety issues, this should really be a good help to you. Nothing will separate you or can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Remember Jesus said, I know my sheep in John 10. He said, I know my sheep. I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all and no one's able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Verses 28 through 30. So you're in Jesus' hand and it's not you hanging onto him. It's him hanging onto you. And then... Jesus in the Father's hand. What can separate you? This is eternal. These are, this is everlasting strength. This is more than a gorilla grip glue, right? I'm thinking grip. More than a vice grip, more than a gorilla grip. This is an eternal grip of God, and he's never letting go. Oh, no, never let go. <laughs> so Romans 8 starts with no condemnation and then ends with no separation, but when life happens, and it does, and the devil roars like a roaring lion and creating fear and anxiety and angst and uncertainty and, and fingernail biting and trembling, which I'm not belittling that because we all go through that. Remember these truths that we visited last week, which was found in Psalm 56, verse 3. Put that slide up for a moment. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. So fear will come, but when it does, let it be a catalyst to drive us to our faith and trust in the one who's everlasting, who's eternal. Who is God? Ask yourself that continuously. Where is God? Tell yourself that continuously. So then moving along through Psalm 46, starting in verse, uh, verses 9, 6 through 9, when we come down to verse 9, it says that God makes wars to cease. God makes wars to cease. That's interesting. And maybe I, there's a lot to, that we could have like drilled down on from verses 6 through 9, but I think it's because we're, we're winding down uh, the book of Revelation and probably because of all that's happening in the world right now. I mean, all, all of the billions of dollars that's going to Ukraine, all of the... You know, we're six months deep into the war, the proximity war between Russia and Ukraine. That's hard to believe. Six months already. Has it been that long? Six months? About that? Maybe less. I don't know. Um, kind of beta testing, maybe. I don't know all that goes on. I don't, I don't know. Uh, all I know is kind of what I kind of read, and sometimes I read between the lines. But it's just interesting that there's so much saber rattling when it comes to Taiwan. Where, yeah, there's, and there's other wars going on. What about the Sudan? No one even talks about the Sudan. Did you even know we're fighting a war in the Sudan? Anyone, anyone? Yeah, that's going on. Um, what about in Syria? They're just exchanging rockets left and right. What about the, like, the operations that we're running because Iran's going nuclear? There's a lot going on, that, but the ones that kind of make the news, Ukraine, Russia, and then we're sending aircraft. We got, we got that new $10 billion, um, the one that just set out on its maiden voyage, um, you know, uh, aircraft. Speaking of Top Gun, did you, see about, did you see the new aircraft carrier that we sent out? Yeah, on its way over there. Um, so we hear about wars and rumors of wars, and then you hear about um, MAD, right? What's MAD? Mutually assured destruction, the MAD doctrine, right? You launch on us, we launch on you, and we're all done. So how does that make you feel as a Christian? How does that make you as a, feel as a veteran of, of war? 
that has served your country. We have plenty of veterans uh, that I'm proud to say that have served our country. And, you know, it, it just kind of puts us in kind of an uncertain predicament. And when we go through the book of Revelation, as we have on um, Sunday nights, we have to complement it with uh, Matthew chapter 24, amongst other chapters in the Gospels. But in the Matthew chapter 24 scenario, before he gets into the, the tribulation time and what we'd say Armageddon and all that kind of stuff, he says, before all this happens, you're going to be hearing of, put this slide up, wars and rumors of wars. Wars and rumors of wars. Wars and rumors of wars. Next slide, please. There you go. I just said it. Wars and rumors of wars, but I just want to give you kind of a, you know, so the chess pieces are moving around and it's kind of hard to think like, well, what, did, what is, who's thinking this many moves ahead? What's, what in the world's going on? So the United Nations, the World Economic Forum, the Jesuits, the Freemasons, artificial intelligence, the singularity, the Great Reset, the Agenda 2030, the Democrats, the left-wing liberals, and the right-wing conservatives, and conspiracy theorists, the International Monetary Fund, the Green New Deal, the Communists, the Socialists, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Technocrats, the Transhumanists, all combined cannot and will not thwart the power and plan of God in prophecy and for your future concerning you. God is the one that causes wars to cease. They, people could sign any peace treaty they want, but until the Prince of Peace really negotiates what real peace is, no one's going to have lasting peace. So when the Bible says in Psalm 46.7, it'll be on the screen, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress, Selah. What he wants us to do in the word Selah um, is to pause for a moment. So in other words, God is not only with us, he is for us, and he's living in union with us. Therefore, we could say law. So let's look at the word here, if you would. Say law. Basically, to pause and to reflect. What was previously said about God? What was previously explained? Or what is the Holy Spirit revealing in your heart? Have you ever gone to the Bible and just kind of like, well... You know, like if you do exercise, I got to do, you know, 50 push-ups, and I got to run a mile on a treadmill, I got to do this, I got to do that. You ever go to the Bible as if it's like a, you know, like, yeah, I got to get this many chapters done, and, you know, and, and you kind of have it systematized? What, I think what God's doing when he puts Selah in Psalms, of course, he's doing it musically, you know, he wants the musicians to stop and pause, but he also wants the reader, the Christian, the believer to ponder, to reflect, to take a moment. What is God trying to say? What is God trying to say? Go to the next slide. So the word selah means to lift up, to exalt. It's a technical musical term, probably showing extenuation. Um, but it also means, where am I at here in my notes? It means suspension, that is to take time out, to pause, or to interrupt. And is it hard for us to redeem the time? And the Bible says, because the days are evil. But the Bible, he makes that an imperative. Christian, redeem the time because the days are evil. It's hard for us sometimes to take time out, to pause in the busyness of life, to suspend the tyranny of the immediate, and to reflect on who God is in us and who we are in God. You know, one of the big things in psychotherapy and in therapy, which I think Christians minimize because the secular world's kind of like um, majored on it, so we're like, whatever they do, let's do the opposite, right? Because that's humanist and it doesn't apply for us. And some of that's true. I, I'm, you know, there's a lot of this stuff where I'm like, eh, no, nah, that doesn't bear witness. It's not congruent with my Christian uh, ideology or biases. But um, self care and mindfulness and meditation. It's interesting how the world hijacked meditation, but in the Psalms, it, it talks about meditation all over. And it just kind of goes with this idea of selah, meditate, uh, ponder, um, take some time out to really be fixated on the nature and the character of who God is. What are his promises? What is he saying to you? What is he saying about you? Ponder this thing. Don't just take a casual glance and get back to, right back to what you were doing. 
you miss the point, right? We'll miss the point. And the tyranny of the world, of the immediate, that's harvesting our attention, that's trying to buy for our attention, which is, for the Christian, it's focused on Christ, but for them, it's, it's something entirely different. And it seems so important. It seems so demanding. It seems, you know, just the tyranny of the immediate. Um, what the word say law should imply for us is, you know, it's okay. It's not selfish, Christian. Just take some time out. Self-care, mindfulness, meditation on the Lord, on things that are above and not on the things of the earth. I use this example a lot in the, in, in the clinical therapy room. You guys know what that is. I hope you can see that, right? That's the oxygen that falls down from the airplane in case of cabin pressure loss, right? And they're, they're always, you guys have probably seen it so much that if you're flown, you're on your phone or you're trying to figure out the entertainment system. Wait, did I link it up before it? What if we get in the air and I can't watch them? So you're not even listening anymore because you know, and they're like doing, how many times have you seen the seatbelt thing? <laughs> you, you, you know the routine. But one of the things that they say in case of an emergency or a loss of pressure in the cabin, and I always wondered about this growing up, like that seems selfish. I want to help people around me. They said, you got to put this on you first before you could help others. Why? You're no, you're no use to anyone else if you're dead. So they want you to secure, if you're able to, secure your own oxygen, your own health, your own vitality, so then you could then extend that to others. What if we applied that to our Christian experience? I think the reason why we don't think about self-care and mindfulness and we don't say law ourselves is because we feel selfish. We feel like, no. Maybe I do because I'm coming from a pastor's type of view or a, a, a counselor, therapist. I'm always like others, you know, help, 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 help. But what if we said, you know, it's, it's not selfish. It's important for me to take time out, to get recharged, so to speak, to get my batteries recharged, to get some oxygen flowing, um, to get some life back in myself. Because when I recharge, then I'm able to then extend outward after I take care of the inward. And this all comes from the idea of Selah, Selah, Siyah. Here's a quote. You've heard this. Don't just stand there, do something. The world, right? Productivity, productivity. I was listening to Elon Musk and um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Um, no, not Elon Musk. Um, I heard his interview before. Uh, um, Joe Rogan interviewing Mark Zuckerberg. Of course, Joe Rogan's a commentator, UFC, stand-up comedian, uh, but he also has this podcast. <laughs> he's just—he's uh, kind of an anomaly in in the in the podcast space. He's just a weird anomaly. You can't—you don't get him figured out. He asks really, you're like, where does this guy come from? And he gets the leaders of industry to come on his show. Not for a quick little like update, long form interviews, which are two to three to four hours long. So he's interviewing Mark Zuckerberg, who invented Facebook, who then bought WhatsApp, who then bought uh, Instagram, who now is creating Meta. He kind of got out in front of it. And they're talking about augmented reality versus virtual reality uh, and stuff like that. But one of the things that Mark Zuckerberg was pitching was the idea of augmented reality. Just think of the, the band, the music ministry. What if they weren't really here, but yet they did virtual, re they, they had a holographic presence to where, hey, you guys, you guys come to church, but we're going to be at home. We'll just show up um, holographically. But see, the sales pitch of augmented reality, and they're not there yet with the technology, but soon, the, the idea is that you could you could be more efficient. You could be more efficient. You could be at home. You don't have to battle the commute. We know this from the pandemic, right? Zoom meetings and all that kind of stuff. Some of you still work remote. I did telehealth for a long part of it. I meet clients um, through Zoom and stuff like that. Um, so the idea is uh, efficiency, 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 more productivity, more productivity. 
So the resounding message is don't just stand there, do something. How could you be more uh, productive? Maybe when God inserts the word Selah into the Psalms, maybe this is what he's trying to say. Go to the next slide. Don't just do something, stand there. Don't just do something, stand there. Another psalm, when I consider the heavens and the work of your fingers, what is man that you're mindful of him? When I, when I just stop and consider. Have we ever, do we stop and consider like God's creation? The earth is phenomenal. We're just a little tiny speck in comparison of the, the awe and the splendor of who God is and what he's created. Um, and it only takes these pausing times, these times where self-care, mindfulness, meditation, we're, we're, we're putting off uh, the tyranny of the immediate. I thought about this, and you guys might revolt, but I thought, because August is almost over, but I was going to call it Abstinence August, where um, <laughs> you think you're thinking something totally different where we go on a digital diet, where you come to church and you put your cell phone in the basket in the back. Right? Wouldn't that be interesting? And you, some of you guys are getting anxiety right now. You're like, you're checking your pocket. You're like, oh, good, she's still there. <laughs> I don't know what you call her. Um, but I thought about that, right? Say la. I think that's why, like, in-person church, you could never replace organic, authentic, 3D, real-life, experiential church. You can't. Augmented reality is just, yeah, it might be more efficient, but is it more, is it better? So, be still and know that I'm God. And now we're going we're gonna to end with just, just this, on this last point. From Psalm 46, 10 through 11, be still and know that I'm God. The first thought I want to bring up is being still. I put that thing up on the left because I thought it was like, looked like a yield sign. But I don't know. Maybe it just looks like an upside-down triangle. <laughs> yield, like be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. So when we pause and become still before God in our faith, in our trust, uh, and when we take matters out of our hands and patiently put them into the hands of the Father, then the battle becomes the Lord's, and then we can see what he can and will do. For example, Moses saw this. Remember, they left Egypt, and they're coming, and their backs are against the wall, and they're about ready to cross over the Red Sea. And he's leading a whole bunch of people, about six million, let's just say, about the size of, what, Denver, Colorado area. So he's leading that whole city size of people out into the desert. Now he's up against a sea. And go to the next slide, if you will. So go to the next one. So Moses saw this. And Moses said unto the people, Fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you today. Can you imagine having that much faith? Your circumstances are telling you otherwise. Here's the greatest army on God's green earth coming at us with weapons of mass destruction, at least their destruction. They have no weapons, and they have no escape plan. This isn't like a game where it's an escape game. <laughs> And he says, just stand still. Wouldn't our tendency freak out, take matters into your own hands, start scheming, start planning, start conniving, start squirming, start want? All of us do that. We all do that. In the context of be still and know that I'm God, in the context of say law, I'm taking that one word, be still, or that phrase, be still, and I'm just, I'm hyper-focusing on it right now. Moses saw this. Be still. Stand still. Couldn't do anything else. You have an option. But in the stillness, then the victory became the Lord's. If Moses said, uh, <laughs> what's the, what was it? Renegade or <laughs> regulators, mount up. If he's like, let's turn, let's face, let's face it, they would have all been mowed down by the chariots and the spears and the swords. 
Now, Israel witnesses, here's kind of another uh, scenario where the, the odds were against them. And so in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and verse 17, he says, you shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. Kind of the same concept there. And then God gave the victory, and then they responded, and in the rest of the chapter, they break out into songs and celebration and uh, praising the Lord and all that. Um, but they saw that when they stood and... Remember, I think it was um, Elijah's, yeah, it was his servant. <clears throat> they said, we're surrounded, we're surrounded. And he goes, stand still. And he prayed that the God would open his eyes. And, and then he showed him that they were surrounded by chariots of fire, but he didn't see it. And if he would just kept running around in fear and, and trepidation, uh, then he wouldn't have saw it. But then God opened his eyes and he saw it. And he's able then to see the salvation of the Lord. Samuel knew this. Look at what Samuel says in chapter 9 and verse 27. And as they're going down the end of the city, Samuel said unto Saul, Bid the servant to pass on before us, and he passed on. But stand thou still a while, that I might show you the word of the Lord. And then he said this in chapter 12. He says, Now therefore stand still, that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and your fathers. So there's this idea of say law, stand so we could hear, stand so we could see, stand so we could just kind of understand and comprehend what the Lord may be doing. You know, kind of we get out in front of God sometimes, we do that, we take matters into our own hands. I think the, one of the biggest illustrations would be um, Abraham and Sarah, where he's like, well, God promised us a kid, look at our circumstances, we're old, we're past that age, I know. Go have sex with the handmaiden um, Hagar, and then we'll take matters into our own hands. So they had the product of flesh, and the other one was the one of faith. And so this comes from standing, being still, and knowing that God is God. King David practiced this. Look at Psalm 4.4. Stand in awe and sit not, or sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed, and be still. Selah. That's a good one. Commune with your heart and bed. Be still. That, you know, in sleep hygiene, one of the main things that they teach in nowadays is turning off all electronic devices. Don't go to sleep to the... And there's things on YouTube that are tempting, like, hey, go to sleep, because I do this. <laughs> I'm a hypocrite. Hey, go to sleep to this nine hours of outer space travel, and there's quiet music in the background. But they say it's the blue light that really kind of interrupts your like REM sleep, your, the sleep that you really need. Uh, white noise is okay. They say that could be a good thing. But definitely no, no drinking caffeine or no eating two hours before you go to bed. And I'm below that too. There's a lot of things I'm a hypocrite on. Um, but have you, ever, have you ever turned all things off and you're just kind of there in your bed and you're just communing? You and God, you're still, or maybe that's early in the morning. You wake up and it's kind of quiet. No one's up yet. You're communing with your heart in bed. Mary experienced this. Now, look at this next slide. Mary experiences. And Martha, as soon as she uh, heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. This is Mary, Mary vindicated. Remember, Martha condemned her before. Um, and, and so... I'm not going to get into this because we spoke about this at length. But it's very interesting that she's doing the same thing, but yet she's not being corrected. She's being encouraged to just be still. I remember Jesus said um, in her stillness and in her abiding and in her communing and in her fellowshipping with Jesus, she chose the good part. I think that's a verse, that, that she chose the good part in her say law with Jesus. Um, but this one thing is needful or needed, and Mary's chosen that good part. And so that being still, that communing with Jesus, that fellowship, she chose the good part. So choosing to be still, to pause with God, to be silent, to wait and to take time out of our busy lives, to meditate on the Lord, to apply self-care, to apply mindfulness, uh, to choose Christ and to not settle for anything less than Jesus is to choose the good part. And then he says, be still and then know that I'm God. This will be the last thing that we'll talk about here. Be still and know that I'm God. 
Will you throw up the A.W. Tozer quote? Look at this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure base as the worshiper entertains high and low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most pretentious fact about any man or woman is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. Without a doubt, the mightiest thought the mind can entertain is the thought of God. He says, be still and know that I'm God. Now, to know God does not mean to know theological truths or trivia about God. To know God goes much deeper. And I want to, I want to be careful when I talk about this because I, I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea because of our, our distorted culture in which we live. But what does the Bible mean when it says to know God? You might be having an idea. I certainly had an idea. But when you kind of mine out what the Bible means by what does it mean to know God, it's something altogether maybe different than what you had previously thought. I want to give you an example. The Bible says that Mary did not know Joseph, even though they were engaged and espoused to be married. That's interesting. What does that mean? Wait, married? She says, she's, she, for being afraid of being accused wrongly because this would have meant death in that culture, being stoned. I did, I did not know a man. I, didn't, I don't know my husband. I don't know Joseph. Wait a second, are you denying you know him? What's going on? You don't know about him. You don't know, you don't know where he comes from. You don't know his background. You don't know his occupation. You don't know that he's a carpenter by trade. You don't know what city he, he's from? You, okay, so you're going all the way up to Bethlehem, the city of David, to pay taxes for what? Because you don't know him? What are you talking about you don't know him? You don't know Joseph? Huh, interesting. I think we've got a liar, liar, little pants on fire on our hands here. Certainly knew about, certainly she knew about Joseph. She knew things about his personality. She knew about his family. She knew where he lived. Uh, she knew his siblings. Um, she knew what he did for a living. Mary knew a lot about Joseph, but she did not know him in the closest way possible. When Mary was told she was about to conceive the virgin birth of Christ, here's what she said, and put this on the screen, Luke 134. Then Mary said to the angel, How shall these things be, seeing I know not a man? What, you don't know Joseph? You don't know the male species? You've never, you've never known a man. You never knew your dad? Never knew your brother? Never knew your uncle? So you don't know, you don't know, you don't have any sort of intellectual assent or knowledge or capacity to know about mankind. Is that what you're saying? Is that what you mean by you don't know? Because now we're getting very, very, very vague, Mary. I'm getting confused on what you mean by the word no. Do you know where I'm going with this? Again, Mary knew about men factually, but she did not know men intimately. When Mary knew Joseph after they were married, I'm just going to say it, I don't mean to be rude or inappropriate or crass, but she had sexual intercourse with her new husband. I said it in church, I'm sorry, but Mary had kids after Jesus, but they weren't virgin born. After she was married to Joseph, she knew her husband. You know what I'm talking about? Knew her husband. So you can't get any closer to someone physically than knowing them in that intimate way that husbands and wives know each other. Do you know what I'm talking about? Of course you do. So if we're going to say we know God, it has to go beyond biblical facts. We have to know him intimately. Now this is where the distortion comes in because already we're thinking, like, you know, 
Our, our picture of physical intimacy has been so corrupted by culture that it's hard for us to think about it in like the purest, simplest terms. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two shall become one. And that picture that God set up in the beginning, the first holiest of institutions that he ever created and put forth into his creation has been distorted since the fall. But I'm here to say what God means by knowing God has the same connotation because it's not just going to seminary. Like, that would mean that people that go and learn the Hebrew and the Greek, they should might as well move to Greece and Israel because then if you know more, especially from the ancient language, the original ones, then you're going you're gonna to have more of God and you're just going to get closer because you, you know him more or you know about him more. Then that's not the case. Just as in marriage, when a man and a woman leave their father and their mother and cleave unto each other, the two become one, is the same connotation. That's why the Bible says, Paul says, I'm going to share with you a mystery. And he talks about a husband and wife, but he also talks about Christ and the church, where they become one. And it's a mystery. We're Jews and Gentiles, male and female, bond or free. We all become one in Christ. And he says, this is a mystery. And the only way you're going to understand it, if the Holy Spirit turns the light switch on. Some of you aren't going to understand it. And some of you aren't ready for it. It's okay. But look at Ephesians 3.19, and we just have four more verses in, wrapping it all up. Ephesians 3.19, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. See, in, in, even in the flow, this is the same Greek word, to know, and then you're filled. You know, when you, when you fill a cup, if it's empty, it's empty, but when you fill it, it's full. Now, what's in the cup, you could put a label on the outside, you know. What's on the outside describes what the content's on the inside. And so what's on the inside of us is the very life of Christ. This was the promise of the new covenant, and I alluded to it earlier, but look at Hebrews chapter 8 as he's talking about this. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and us in that day, says the Lord, I will put my laws and his life into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. And so that's what he's saying here, is like, you will know the Lord. John 14, 20. And on that day you shall know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I in you. There's that intimate connection for this cause. Leave, leave the parents, and the two shall become one. Jesus saying, it's a mystery, but this cause. You believe in me? Just as I'm in the Father, you can't get any closer than that, the family of God. When you enter into Christ and Christ enters into you, you can't get any closer. That's knowing God. That's knowing, spiritually, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. This was obviously the prayer of Jesus Look at from John 17. I encourage you to read the whole chapter, but just a few verses. And this is life eternal, that thou might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he have sent. So this is eternal life, to know not intellectually facts. I could explain the Trinity. I could debate with atheists. I could, I could run circles around agnostics. Okay, so you know some facts. Good. Do you know the Lord? 2 Corinthians 13.5, I don't have this verse up there, but it says, let each person examine themselves, whether Christ is in them, because if he's not, you're none of his. You're a reprobate, it says. He uses harsher language. But he says, this is eternal life, to know, not intellectual, experiential, spiritual. He's in you and you're in him. That they may all be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in you. That they may be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me, and this is the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that we may be perfect in one. That sounds like the totality of the gospel. 
And the very, very last verse, 1 John 5.20, last verse. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him, there's that word again, that is true, and we are in him that is true, there's that, that union, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So, in wrapping this thing up, last quote. We don't, come, we don't just come to the Bible to know facts, but to know the Father. We don't just come to the Bible to know facts, but to know the Father. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. You place your faith alone and the good news of Christ alone. He comes into you. You pass from death to life. Now eternal life is in you, and he's never going to leave you because you're sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So some concluding questions before I encourage you to make your life night plans for next week. Number one, do you personally know God? Well, yeah, I know his name's Jehovah Jireh in some parts. Uh, you know, I know he's the father. Uh, I, well, no, that's not the question. Do you know him in the same way that after Mary and Joseph's marriage were consummated, the two became one, and she knew her husband, but before she didn't. She knew about him, but she didn't know him. Do you know God personally? Number two, do we take time to say law with God? I struggle with this one, because a lot of times I'm always giving out to other people that sometimes I don't take time out for myself. And my wife has always brought this up to me, and she's like, do you take time out for yourself? Are you taking time out for yourself? And sometimes I, sometimes I don't. There's sometimes there's a lot of deadlines, you know, sometimes. Um, but it's important, and I'm feeling this now more than ever. So do you say law with God? Do you, do you take that, that self-care, that time out, that recharge, that realignment? And number three, if we do know God in the biblical sense, not in the intellectual sense, do we make him known by experiencing and expressing the life of Christ to those around us? How do you do that? Just be authentic. Be present. Be aware of who you are in Christ and who Christ is in you. Take time out. God, what are you doing? What, what do you want me to do? Jesus rolled into town. Do you want me to heal people? Do you want me to share the good news? Do you want me to just stay here for a day? What do you want me to do? He didn't, he didn't offer, operate on a day planner. I was like, okay, Father, what is it? And that's just walking by faith and not by sight. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and be dismissed in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you that we could be still and know that you're God. And the world would fight and fight and fight against us to take the time to be still and to know, to know that you're God and to just really rest in that. It's like a hammock relationship where we're just falling back into the everlasting arms of the Father. Thank you that you have a grip on us and it's not depending on us to hold on to you. And Lord, I just pray that in the busyness of life that that all of us here, with all the demands, all the responsibilities, all the things vying for our attention, that we would just make time uh, to, I guess, put that oxygen mask on and to breathe in the life of the Spirit. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.